Life is complex. Join us for the simple gifts of wisdom, love, and delight in the written word. The Everlasting Man by G.K. Chesterton Part 2 On the Man Called Christ Chapter 3 The Strangest Story in the World Part 1 In the last chapter, I have deliberately stressed what seems to be nowadays a neglected side of the New Testament story. But nobody will suppose, I imagine, that it is meant to obscure that side that may truly be called human. That Christ was and is the most merciful of judges and the most sympathetic of friends is a fact of considerably more importance in our own private lives than in anybody's historical speculations. But the purpose of this book is to point out that something unique has been swamped in cheap generalizations, and that for that purpose it is relevant to insist that even what was most universal was also most original. For instance, we might take a topic which really is sympathetic to the modern mood, as the ascetic vocations recently referred to are not. The exaltation of childhood is something which we do really understand, but it was by no means a thing that was then in that sense understood. If we wanted an example of the originality of the gospel, we could hardly take a stronger or more startling one. Nearly 2,000 years afterwards, we happen to find ourselves in a mood that does really feel the mystical charm of the child. We express it in romances and regrets about childhood, in Peter Pan, or the child's garden of verses. And we can say of the words of Christ with so angry an anti-Christian as Swinburne, No sign that ever was given to faithful or faithless eyes showed ever beyond clouds riven, so clear a paradise. Earth's creeds may be seventy times seven, and blood have defiled each creed. But if such be the kingdom of heaven, it must be heaven indeed. But that paradise was not clear until Christianity had gradually cleared it. The pagan world, as such, would not have understood any such thing as a serious suggestion that a child is higher or holier than a man. It would have seemed like the suggestion that a tadpole is higher or holier than a frog. To the merely rationalistic mind, it would sound like saying that a bud must be more beautiful than a flower, or that an unripe apple must be better than a ripe one. In other words, this modern feeling is an entirely mystical feeling. It is quite as mystical as the cult of virginity. In fact, it is the cult of virginity. But pagan antiquity had much more idea of the holiness of the virgin than of the holiness of the child. For various reasons, we have come nowadays to venerate children, perhaps partly because we envy children for still doing what men used to do, such as play simple games and enjoy fairy tales. Over and above this, however, there is a great deal of real and subtle psychology in our appreciation of childhood. But if we turn it into a modern discovery, we must once more admit that the historical Jesus of Nazareth had already discovered it 2,000 years too soon. There was certainly nothing in the world around him to help him to the discovery, 
Here, Christ was indeed human, but more human than a human being was then likely to be. Peter Pan does not belong to the world of Pan, but the world of Peter. Even in the matter of mere literary style, if we suppose ourselves thus sufficiently detached to look at it in that light, there is a curious quality to which no critic seems to have done justice. It had, among other things, a singular air of piling tower upon tower by the use of the a fortiori, making a pagoda of degrees like the seven heavens. I have already noted that almost inverted imaginative vision which pictured the impossible penance of the cities of the plain. There is perhaps nothing so perfect in all language or literature as the use of these three degrees in the parable of the lilies of the field, in which he seems first to take one small flower in his hand and note its simplicity and even its impotence, then suddenly expands it in flamboyant color, or rather, as tiring is to gymnastic, so sophistry is to legislation, and as cookery is to medicine, so rhetoric is to justice. And this, I say, is the natural difference between the rhetorician and the sophist, but by reason of their near connection, they are apt to be jumbled up together. Neither do they know what to make of themselves, nor do other men know what to make of them. For if the body presided over itself, and were not under the guidance of the soul, and the soul did not discern and discriminate between cookery and medicine, but the body was made the judge of them, and the rule of judgment was the bodily delight which was given by them, that word with which you, friend Polis, are so well acquainted, would prevail far and wide. Chaos would come again, and cookery, health, and medicine would mingle in an indiscriminate mass. And now I have told you my notion of rhetoric, which is, in relation to the soul, what cookery is to the body. I may have been inconsistent in making a long speech when I would not allow you to discourse at length, but I think that I may be excused, because you did not understand me and could make no use of my answer when I spoke shortly, and therefore I had to enter into an explanation. And if I show an equal inability to make use of yours, I hope that you will speak at equal length. But if I am able to understand you, let me have the benefit of your brevity, as is only fair. And now you may do what you please with my answer. What do you mean? asks Polus. Do you think that rhetoric is flattery? Nay, I said a part of flattery. If at your age, Polus, you cannot remember, what will you do by and by when you get older? And are the good rhetoricians meanly regarded in states under the idea that they are flatterers? Is that a question or the beginning of a speech? I am asking a question. Then my answer is that they are not regarded at all. How not regarded? Have they not very great power in states? Not if you mean to say that power is a good to the possessor. And that is what I do mean to say. Then, if so, I think that they have the least power of all the citizens. What? Are they not like tyrants? They kill and despoil and exile anyone whom they please. By the dog, Polis, I cannot make out at each deliverance of yours whether you are giving an opinion of your own or asking a question of me. I am asking a question of you. 
Yes, my friend, but you asked two questions at once. How two questions? Why, did you not say just now that the rhetoricians are like tyrants, and that they kill and despoil or exile any one whom they please? I did. Well, then I say to you that here are two questions in one, and I will answer both of them. And I tell you, Polis, that rhetoricians and tyrants have the least possible power in states, as I was just now saying, for they do literally nothing which they will, but only what they think best. And is not that a great power? Polis has already said the reverse. Said the reverse? Nay, that is what I assert. No, by the great, what do you call him? Not you, for you say that power is a good to him who has the power. I do. And would you maintain that if a fool does what he thinks best, this is a good, and would you call this great power? I should not. Then you must prove that the rhetorician is not a fool, and that rhetoric is an art and not a flattery. And so you will have refuted me. But if you leave me unrefuted, why? The rhetoricians who do what they think best in states, and the tyrants, will have nothing upon which to congratulate themselves, if, as you say, power be indeed a good, admitting at the same time that what is done without sense is an evil. Yes, I admit that, said Polis. How then can the rhetoricians or the tyrants have great power in states, unless Polis can refute Socrates? and prove to him that they do as they will. This fellow, I say that they do not as they will. Now refute me. Why? Have you not already said that they do as they think best? And I say so still. Then surely they do as they will. I deny it. But they do what they think best? I. That. Socrates, is monstrous and absurd. Good words, good Polis, as I may say in your own peculiar style. But if you have any questions to ask of me, either prove that I am in error, or give the answer yourself. Very well, I am willing to answer that I may know what you mean. Do men appear to you to will that which they do, or to will that further end for the sake of which they do a thing, when they take medicine, for example, at the bidding of a physician? Do they will the drinking of the medicine which is painful, or the health for the sake of which they drink? Clearly the health. And when men go on a voyage or engage in business, they do not will that which they are doing at the time. For who would desire to take the risk of a voyage or the trouble of business? But they will to have the wealth for the sake of which they go on a voyage. Certainly. And is this not universally true? If a man does something for the sake of something else, he wills not that which he does, but that for the sake of which he does it. Yes. And are not all things either good or evil, or intermediate and indifferent? To be sure, Socrates, wisdom and health and wealth and the like you would call goods, and their opposites, evils. I should, and the things which are neither good nor evil, 
and which partake sometimes of the nature of good, and at other times of evil, or of neither, are such as sitting, walking, running, sailing, or again, wood, stones, and the like. These are the things which you call neither good nor evil. Exactly so. Are these indifferent things done for the sake of the good, or the good for the sake of the indifferent? Clearly the indifferent for the sake of the good. When we walk, we walk for the sake of the good, and under the idea that it is better to walk, and when we stand, we stand equally for the sake of the good? Yes. And when we kill a man, we kill him or exile him, or despoil him of his goods, because, as we think, it will conduce to our good? Certainly. Men who do any of these things do them for the sake of the good? Yes. And did we not admit that in doing something for the sake of something else, we do not will those things which we do, but that other thing for the sake of which we do them? Most true. Then we do not will simply to kill a man, or to exile him, or to despoil him of his goods, but we will to do that which conduces to our good. And if the act is not conducive to our good, we do not will it. For we will, as you say, that which is our good. But that which is neither good nor evil, or simply evil, we do not will. Why are you silent, Polus? Am I not right? You are right. Hence we may infer that if anyone, whether he be a tyrant or a rhetorician, kills another or exiles another or deprives him of his property, under the idea that the act is for his own interests, when really not for his own interests, he may be said to do what seems best to him? Yes. But does he do what he wills, if he wills what is evil? Why do you not answer? Well, I suppose not. Then if greater power is a good as you allow, will such a one have great power in a state? He will not. Then I was right in saying that a man may do what seems good to him in a state, and not have great power, and not do what he wills? As though you, Socrates, would not like to have the power of doing what seemed good to you in the state, rather than not. You would not be jealous when you saw anyone killing, or despoiling, or imprisoning whom he pleased? Oh, no! Justly or unjustly, do you mean? In either case, is he not equally to be envied? Forbear, Polis! Why forbear? Because you ought not to envy wretches who are not to be envied, but only to pity them. And are those of whom I spoke wretches? Yes, certainly they are. And so you think that he who slays anyone whom he pleases, and justly slays him, is pitiable and wretched? No, I do not say that of him, but neither do I think that he is to be envied. Were you not saying just now that he is wretched? Yes, my friend, if he killed another unjustly, in which case he is also to be pitied, and he is not to be envied if he killed him justly. At any rate, you will allow that he who is unjustly put to death is wretched, and to be pitied? Not so much Polis as he who kills him and not so much as he who is justly killed. How can that be, Socrates? That may very well be, 
inasmuch as doing injustice is the greatest of evils. But is it the greatest? Is not suffering injustice a greater evil? Certainly not. Then would you rather suffer than do injustice? I should not like either, but if I must choose between them, I would rather suffer than do. Then you would not wish to be a tyrant? Not if you mean by tyranny what I mean. I mean, as I said before, the power of doing whatever seems good to you in a state, killing, banishing, doing in all things as you like. Well then, my illustrious friend, when I have said my say, do you reply to me? Tis the gift to be simple. Tis the gift to be free. Tis the gift to come down where we ought to be. And when we find ourselves in the place just right, will be in the valley of love and delight. When true simplicity is gained, to bow and to bend, we will not be ashamed. To turn, turn, will be our delight, till by turning, turning, 